Good morning. What a beautiful day. I wanted to go out on the water today on my paddleboard, but the winds are going to kick up to 10 miles per hour, so you all know what to pray, right? Calm the seas. He's done it before. You got to get Peter out there. Uh, I want to introduce our storyteller for the day, uh, Lisa Odegaard. She's sitting over there. She'll be coming up in a second. Uh, we heard her story. It's really fun to get to know people in this way. I know it's one of our uh, favorite features of the Sunday service. She is um, really gifted as I've gotten to know her, and she's really humble about it. But my favorite trait about her is how tuned in she is to how other people are doing around her, checking in with people, adjusting herself to uh, match people. I really appreciate that about her. Lisa, come on up and tell us your story. Good morning. Um, I have been attending Evergreen Church with my husband and my two rambunctious little boys, Stellan and Gunnar. There they are. Unfortunately, my husband is homesick today. <laughs> um, my boys are sassy and compassionate, loud and curious, wild and thoughtful, gracious, unruly and supportive. And sometimes that spans in 10 minutes. So they keep me on my toes. Stellan's over there. <laughs> I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> anyway, um, there are many stories that I could share today, but um, I'm going to share one about parenting. Um, I didn't grow up with brothers. I have an older sister and a twin sister, so I was initially freaked out when I found out that I was having a boy. Little did I know, that's all my husband's family has. There are nine boys currently in the family, no girls, which is really wild. Um, Anyway, I love my in-laws. They continually quell my fears about um, me not being able to parent boys, which they're actually so much fun. Um, my labor and delivery with Stellan was according to my midwife textbook, and I like to characterize it as a 12-hour crashing tidal wave that only ended when Stellan decided to make his world debut. Here he is, so cute. Um, the day that I had Stellan um, was one of the happiest days of my life, yet an hour after I had Stellan, I started weeping uncontrollably. I wasn't in physical pain. To give context, my father was very abusive and abandoned our family when I was a teenager. So in that beautiful moment, I was forced to confront very painful memories while trying to wrap my mind around a father that could have complete disregard for his children. Instead of dwelling on it, I have chosen to recognize the pain as a reminder to have more grace, more patience, and be a more present parent. When Gunnar came along a few years later, he decided to take his good old time and be nearly two weeks late so that he could be born on the 4th of July. This is an awesome birthday. <laughs> Being nauseous for nearly 42 weeks straight was not fun. And again, according to my midwife, my labor was textbook. And I like to characterize it as an eight-hour freight train that coursed through me and caused me to yell at my husband in about an epidural. Brian stayed calm and asked me if I remember the last time I made a similar, similar, similar statement. And I said, are you kidding me? Of course I do. It was four years ago, and we were in the same place. And he chuckled and said, it was right before you gave birth to son. And within a few minutes, I had a glorious screaming firecracker named Gunner. Um, he's so cute. Um, 
I am thankful to be married to a very smart man who pays attention to details and knows me so well. It was short-sighted of me to fear raising boys. To my surprise, we share a lot of interests. We watch nature documentaries together. They request to read about dinosaurs. I teach them how to cook. We read every book that we can find on trains. I teach them how to dance. They want to read all about Bigfoot. That is their latest obsession. Oh my goodness, giggling with each other well after bedtime, and I can hear them at their door, and I just want to tell them to be quiet, but at the same time, it's really lovely. Um, silly jokes, squirt gun fights, nerf gun battles, practical jokes, them jumping out and scaring each other. Also, I like to do that. Um, bathroom humor. I like to keep bathroom humor to a minimum at our house because learning manners is important, but because God wants us to delight in our children, I am a child at heart, so slipping a whoopee cushion underneath Stellan, Gunner, or Brian, or their cousins is always hilarious. I did it just last night. Um, <laughs> I love whoopee cushions. <laughs> I stated earlier that I'm a twin. Uh, she is a great mom, and I absolutely adore her. We're, we're not identical, in case that was a question. Um, the inevitable question of, can you read each other's minds? Maybe. As we often finish each other's sentences and on more than a few occasions call each other at the same time. However, being a twin has a few downsides. One of them being is being seen as a unit and not an individual. Growing up constantly being called the twins instead of our actual names was exhausting. It may sound inconsequential, but it highlighted the hurtful underlying issue of me never feeling heard or known as a small child. Brian has honored that concern. So if Stellan or Gunner are within earshot, we will not refer to them as the boys. Our thought process is if they feel heard and known now, they will be more comfortable in their own skin and learn to stand their ground and come to us when they need help or encouragement. Are we perfect? No. I am well aware of my thoughts, which is why I'm in three Bible studies and ask them to pray for me continually. One of the Bible studies that I'm here is at the church and full of ladies imparting great spiritual and motherly wisdom. Uh, last week, Joy Zorn laughed at me because she pointed out that she always knows which prayer request is mine since I pray for patience every week. Is it working? Sometimes. It definitely helps me run to God quicker in those quiet moments of asking God to help Brian and I grow together and be better parents. I notice that if I remember that God is sovereign and in control, my heart stays soft, and I am a more loving, patient, and forgiving parent and spouse. Thank you for letting me share one of my stories. This morning, oh, thanks. Okay. Thanks. Um, this morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Jonah. Uh, please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from Jonah 1 through 10, chapter 3 in the New American Standard Bible. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great, exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least among them. 
When the, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth, and let, them, let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds and that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to continue in the book of Jonah. Uh, we are, um, next week we'll finish this series. This series is called, Oh, Jonah. You have to kind of say it like that, kind of like, oh, bless his heart. Because God is sort of uh, intervening in his life. God is introducing him to this idea that we're going to talk about much today called grace. And it's pretty foreign to him. And it rattles him, and it's sort of uh, uh, offensive to him. And so we're going to see uh, what's going on there. I had originally called this sermon uh, not too late, but I've changed the sermon title to this word, pivot. And uh, we'll talk about what that means. Beyond the story, there are principles that are in the story. And really, the principles are the main takeaways. It's not... Uh, the literal story itself. But God is really revealing himself uh, through this story. We're going to name some of these principles, and then we're going to find some applications for them. And so we will start with what I am calling the pivot principle. Let me read Jonah 5 and 6 again. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. The verses are describing what the Bible calls repentance. The word repent in the Hebrew uh, just means to turn or to pivot. So if I were to translate this word now, instead of the word repent, I would just throw the word in pivot if we were going to do sort of a contemporary translation. These people are pivoting. They're changing their minds. They're turning from one direction to another. I was listening to a bunch of CEOs of turnaround companies this week. They were featured in one uh, program. Heard from uh, Ford, from Pepsi, and from Microsoft, to name a few. And they were all talking about how they were able to turn around a struggling company. And they all had one thing in common. They said, this is the main principle of how to turn around the company. And what's that principle? They have to recognize that they need to turn around. That's the key to turning around. If you say it like that, it kind of makes sense. You know, you can't turn around until you realize you have to turn around. Um, Harvard Business School calls this uh, idea uh, in one article, jumping the S-curve. You know, life sort of goes on a curve, and you have to jump from one plateau to the next before it descends down, before it starts going down. 
but basically the idea is that everything, every living thing, whether it's an organization of living things or an organism, everything has a life cycle. Everything is birthed, and then it lives its life, and then it dies. And that's the normal and natural course of events. And unless there is some kind of intervention, it's going to head that way. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella says this. He says, there is no such thing as a perpetual motion machine. Everything must pivot to stay in play. Now, uh, our church was in a place of needing to turn around. And when they called me, the thing I was looking for was their self-awareness. This church's self-awareness about how much they need to turn around. Because I knew if I went in and I tried to turn, do turnaround work without being invited to do turnaround work, it wasn't going to go well. So the key thing that I was listening for and that I heard was, we need to turn around. We are aware of it. And we have done the work to come to this place where we need to turn around. We know it. We're owning it. So that's why we want to hire you, Peter. And that was the right foot to start on. Another personal story of pivot in my life is before I came here, I was working for a large organization. They had me flying all around the country and the world. I was flying about 150,000 miles a year, and it was a really hard way to live. I, I was still trying to stay active and run uh, races and things, but uh, surely, uh, slowly but surely, I started gaining weight. I gained about 30 pounds, and uh, I became, really, worst of all, I became pre-diabetic. And that really scared me because my grandmother on my mom's side died of diabetes. And my sister uh, is uh, almost pre-diabetic. And my mom uh, takes medicine for diabetes. And so when I was diagnosed with pre-diabetes, I was really awakened. And so I had to do a pivot. And I remember Susie was making me uh, grilled chicken salads for every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It didn't matter. If I was home, I was eating salad. And, uh, you know, and when I came here, I, I realized, you know, the reason I was looking for a local situation is because I needed to pivot. I couldn't keep traveling. My wife couldn't be, uh, in, in effect, a single mom. And I needed to get local. I needed to embed myself in rhythms that were healthier. So that was a pivot in my life. And the question for you is, do you have areas or points in your life where you need to do pivots, where you need to repent, turn around? Maybe it's a way of thinking. Susie and I were walking last night, uh, as we usually do every night, our dog. And uh, I had just been noticing that our conversations on those walks are getting increasingly more negative. And I just thought, are we going to just get older and more negative? Is that just going to be us? Is that that thing that happens that we observe in other people that are getting older? Is that happening to us? we got to pivot. We can't keep getting more negative. Maybe you have a habit. Maybe you have an addiction. Maybe you have some trajectory you see that you're not comfortable with, some value that's being violated. You have to pivot. Now, underneath this pivot principle is the action principle. How do you start a pivot? The way you start a pivot is the same way you fold a pile of laundry. Just one thing at a time. You know how you have this pile of laundry and you walk past it for days? 
And then you learn the lesson all over again. The laundry doesn't tend to fold itself. And then what do you do? You say, well, I'll just, let me, oh, I see a pair of socks. I don't even have to match them. You pick them up, you fold them, put them away. But the important thing is you start with action. And that's what we see in these verses. These people, they don't really know what they're doing. They don't have a full vision of where they want to end up. They just know they need to change their ways. So they take action. And we're not going to put on sackcloth and sit in our ashes. But that's the way they express a change of heart and taking full ownership of what they need to do. And that's the invitation to us today. If there's a pile of laundry, the way you pivot is by just doing something. Just don't do nothing. Something, anything is better than nothing. You're not going to be perfect. Just in general, start moving in that direction. Just tip that first domino. Just touch it. Maybe blow on it. Do whatever you got to do, but set the thing in motion. So that's the simple principle of it. But there's something more underneath it. We have to ask the question, why do we need to pivot? This is where you get a little bit deeper. Verse 9 who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. I don't know if you believe this or not. I have come to believe this, that I believe we are all going to perish. That's the default trajectory. Everything is birthed, everything lives, and then everything dies. That's why I want to pivot, because I don't want to die when I don't have to die. I have come to believe that without regular interventions, we are all going to perish in some way, shape, or form that we don't choose. We don't want to, but we will. I know that I need constant reminders that put me back in touch with the reality that I am headed towards perishing, that I am going to die. The theological way that people have put this is in the uh, framework of original sin. Now, if I talk about the fact that we are fundamentally flawed, that at the very bottom, if we keep digging until we can't dig anymore, what lies on, underneath is not goodness, but it's badness. I believe that about myself, and I believe that about every single human being that has ever walked this earth, including every single person in this room. I believe that you and I are infected with what the Bible calls original sin, that we are not fundamentally good. You know, society loves to say we are basically good people. I don't think we're basically good people. I think we are basically bad people, and we do a really bad job of covering that up. Uh, I was reading this guy, uh, Elaine de Botton, and he talks about this idea of brokenness, the principle of brokenness, the brokenness principle. And he says this, that original sin is a really useful starting point. And he gives this example. He says, imagine a relationship in which two people, they believe they are fundamentally good. They believe they're good people. They don't believe in original sin. They believe that if you dig out deep enough, there's goodness underneath. And they're going to be in this relationship as two good people. He says, if you start that way, that's only going to lead to intolerance and terrible disappointment. Because they're soon and very soon going to realize that they are not that great. That they are, in fact, not perfect. 
And then he goes on to say, imagine a relationship that begins with two people under the idea that they are both quite broken. And because they are both broken, they both need forgiveness from each other from the onset. And by getting into a relationship, the reason they're getting into the relationship is so that they can be conduits of forgiveness and charity and kindness and gentleness and acceptance from the other person. That's why you get into relationships. Not because you're great and you want to share your greatness with that other great person. How long will that last? The reason we get into relationships is so that we, the self, and the other together through each other can experience this idea of brokenness together. You are broken. I am broken. Therefore, we assume forgiveness. I assume you're crazy. I assume you're weird. I assume you're going to be confusing to me. I assume you're going to disappoint me. And that's not meanness. That's kindness, he says. Because if you start with this assumption, then you have to be kind. And then he goes on to say, you know, actually what happens is if you assume that the other person has been infected with original sin just like you, then you're more interested in how that original sin plays out in their life. You say, what are you struggling with? What are your issues? Yeah, it's great, he says, that you got a promotion and you're making tons more money and you're just an amazing human being overall. But who cares? That's not interesting. That's just cover-up. And that's not where the true self lives. I want to get to know you. And I know you are more defined by your brokenness than your wholeness. And my main function in your life is to convey grace and forgiveness, and kindness, and patience to you. He says, this is a much better way to start, and furthermore, it rings true to my own experience of people. So where are you? Do you believe in original sin? If you do, then you need to pivot, and everybody else around you needs to pivot, and our job in each other's lives is to be catalysts for pivoting in the other's lives. And we have to normalize this idea of having a change of mind and repenting. For example, we may say things like, did you eat? Did you sleep? Did you exercise? Did you pivot? That's not going to catch on as a sentence. I know it's quite dorky, but that needs to come to define us as a community. Lastly, we have the grace principle. Chapter, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 says, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The point is not that we are broken, that we are. I assume that about me. I assume that about you. We will work off of that reality. The fact that we are broken and are coming into awareness of it and taking action around it by pivoting, that's all set up for the main event. The main event in the book of Jonah and in our life 
and in the Bible is not the fact that we're broken or that we're repenting from it, but that God is gracious towards us. This is the grace principle. There's a lot to be said about grace. I want to make a few pertinent comments about grace, and we'll get to really the uh, main point of the whole book of Jonah. The first thing I want to say about grace is its definition. Grace, by definition, means this unmerited love from an unobligated giver. So, for example, my parents love me a lot. I call them this week, as I usually try to do every week. And they're just so happy to hear from their dumb son. I don't get it. They're fighting over the phone. Who gets to talk to me more? And they're just, I just feel love coming through the phone. You know, I just feel the intensity of how much they want for me, the good they want for me. They're so greedy for me to get all the good things in life. And if I'm just hinting at any kind of struggle, they want to solve that problem, and they just, I just feel it. Yet, all that love is not grace because they're obligated, right? I mean, when I was growing up, they loved me because I was theirs. Like, I had lots of friends. He didn't, they didn't love those kids. They loved me that way because I belonged to them. It was really more an exercise of being undifferentiated from me than it was them actually loving me. They were just loving themselves, right? So that's not grace. And legally, they had to be good to me or they'd go to jail. So that's not grace. Now, Susie's parents love her too. And when we were back in Boston, they paid for her grad school tuition, which was amazing. She got a master's in literacy, which she hasn't used one day of her life. <laughs> I'm a grad student right now, so I get to have those kind of sentiments about grad school. Uh, but they paid for the whole thing. And to say thank you, we took them on a fishing trip. It cost me $300. Is that grace? No, because they had paid thousands of dollars for Susie's tuition. Maybe they were the gracious ones and not me. No, when they pay for a tuition, that's not grace either because she's their kid. I'm in grad school. They're not paying for my tuition. I hope they are listening to this sermon. <laughs> grace is unmerited love from an unobligated giver. I have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with getting it, asking for it, and then once I receive it, sustaining it. It has zero to do with me. In fact, it doesn't even have anything to do with my relationship with God. It's God's nature to give. God, by definition, is love. And love, by definition, is God. That's what the Bible says, that God is love. This thing that we call love, this intelligent energy that drives the world, the engine of the universe... That's God. And God, being God, loves us. That has nothing to do with who we are, what we've done, None, nothing about our appearance or competence. Zero. We can't control it at all. So the main question about grace, God's love towards us, it's not how much he loves us, but it's when he loves us. That's what the Bible teaches, Romans 5. Romans 5. While or when we were sinners, ungodly, 
helpless enemies. That's when God loved us. If God loved us then, how much more does he love us now? That's the argument of the Bible. And so it's not that he loves us so much. It's he loved us when we didn't deserve it. And because of that, I have an emotional reaction to God's love because I want fairness. I want to control the dispensing of love somehow. I want love to be fair. But it's not fair. It's not based on fairness. It's based on God's own nature. And because God is uncontrollable, there's a wildness to him, and he's out of reach He's out of reach of my control. God's grace seems haphazard. And so when God's dispensing grace to people, other people besides me, I start to feel really uncomfortable. It doesn't feel regulated enough. It feels like he's not really thinking through how somebody could take advantage of it or misconstrue it or misuse it. You know, if God's causing the sun to rise, as the Bible says God is doing, then isn't he sort of enabling all sorts of bad behavior on earth? Why is he so gracious to people? Why didn't he just get rid of people as soon as they deviate? Why is God not intelligent enough with grace? Why isn't he thoughtful about grace? Even our sort of justice system and our welfare system, that all seems more seeing than God is. God seems to be indiscriminate in the way he dispenses grace. And that's why, and that's why Jonah has the reaction that he has. The way that Jonah reacts to God's desire to help and save the Ninevites is precisely my reaction to grace. It's Jonah's pain point for him. He says, I knew it. I knew you would relent. I knew your plan all along was to give these people a second chance. They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve forgiveness. Why should I give them this warning? I'm out of here. I'm not participating in this evil. We're going to get into this in chapter 4. But when Jonah says when he thought about the evil of the people, he himself was consumed with evil. You know, he feels like the Ninevites are infected and they're fundamentally flawed. He believes he doesn't have original sin, that he's fundamentally good, and in some way he has merited God's love. He's misconstruing grace, and he wants to control it. Now, this, now we're getting to the main, the main message of the book of Jonah and really what gets at the heart of what grace is in general. And this is the question. Who gets to be on the receiving end of God's grace? Who gets to decide who's out and who's in? Look at the book of Jonah. Just step back a little bit and you look at the story and this is Jonah's problem. Jonah had drawn a line. It included Israel. It did not include the Assyrians. If you study history, uh, I can't even, uh, in, a, in an appropriate way, describe what they were like. If I were to describe, it's graphic, it's violent, it's unjust, it's absolutely destructive. It's cruel and unusual the way they treated others, other non-Assyrians. 
This is what the Assyrians were famous for. The Israelites were on the receiving end of it. I understand why Jonah drew a line around the Ninevites and said, they of all people cannot, should not, must not be given a second chance. It makes sense from Jonah's perspective. But then you step back and you ask the larger question, who gets to be on the receiving end of grace given what the definition of grace is? Theologians call this the theology of inclusion. And everybody's got one. You've got one. I've got one. Even if you have never thought about it, you've got one. You've interacted with your own reaction to grace. You know, you set up a meeting and somebody's late. How gracious should you be? At what minute mark do they not deserve your graciousness? You know, we all have some kind of theology of inclusion. There's a threshold and somebody crosses it and you say, I'm out. They're out. They don't deserve it. I'm beyond polite. I'm beyond absorbent. They deserve judgment. And my judgment is going to be to text them and let them know they can't. I'm, I'm leaving. I hope everything is okay. It's a passive-aggressive wish right there. Meaning, I hope something is wrong because something better be wrong because you stood me up. By the way, if you have meetings with me and you don't show up, like you stand me up, I love it. It's like snow day for me. I have all these things to do and I just get to do it. Not that I don't want to be with you, but I just have a long list. You know, this is catching us at a, a cultural climate when everything is politicized. So this word inclusion may trigger some of you. But put aside, try to put aside your politics, your sexual politics, your politicized views of sexuality. Put all that aside just for a second and ask yourself the question, who should be excluded? Uh, I was reading some Brene Brown uh, last week and this week. And, uh, you know, she's famous uh, researcher and professor in Texas. She lives in Houston. And she says, you know, uh, my block, my entire, just the square area was completely flooded with about six feet of water. There were only two houses that were, um, that, that uh, made it through the storm. And it was my house and somebody else's house. And all those other people, they were s standing on their roofs hoping to be rescued. And then she says, these boats from all over the uh, other parts of the country descended on the city of Houston out of nowhere. And people were just rescuing people. Uh, and she says, you know, if you were driving one of these boats, do you go up to a roof and then extend the hand and say, wait, now, wait a minute. Who did you vote for? <laughs> What's the line that you draw? What's the question you have to ask before you refuse to... Save somebody from off of the roof. Now the question is, what if everybody's on different roofs? What if you can't save yourself? What if we're all on the same uh, playing field? And we are all desperately in need of grace, in need of rescue. Then how do you draw the line? If you find yourself drawing lines, what that means is that you don't understand your own personal condition. If you believe on some level you are fundamentally good, that you don't need to be a recipient of grace, but it's sort of like semi-earned 
then you're going to have to draw lines because you have to protect your effort. You have to protect the sense of decency you believe you've lived up to. And you believe other people are fundamentally flawed and they don't deserve it because they're not as good as you. I want to read you a couple of uh, sentences here that I found to be really powerful. God has no enemies. The gospel should be inclusive. If the grace of God in Christ is given to all, this grace is given to all people precisely because it is given to ungodly sinners deserving of death, Romans 4, 5. Under the gospel, there are no longer any human givens or evaluations of worth like gender, ethnicity, or economic status, Galatians 3.28, because God deals with humanity according to the more fundamental realities of sin and death. Here, there is not a mutual acceptance of difference within the cornucopia of the community, but a recognition of a sameness before God, which in turn unites strangers to one another as fellow servants, meaning we are all in the same boat or on the same roof, as it were. It goes on to say, the theology of inclusion places the ever-expanding borders of the church as the heartbeat of its message. The love of God has no bounds to its scope, and the corresponding expression of human love likewise embraces people from all walks of life, especially the marginalized other. Jesus embodies such love through his ministry to all those believed to be outside of the covenant, Paul, driven by a belief in the equality of all persons, extended the bounds of the church through the inclusion of the Gentiles. The church then is to continue the mission of God by likewise welcoming all people into the inclusive love of God embodied by the community itself. The practice of evangelism is reframed as the practice of hospitality. The more diverse the church becomes, usually defined along the lines of race, economic status, and gender, the more vibrant its communal life, and the stronger its witness grows. Let me try to restate that in my own words. The message of the gospel of grace is defined and understood by the breadth of it. If the content applies to just some, then it is immediately diminished in value. If the content applies to all, then the content is self-validating. The breadth of the message validates its content because the content is grace. And grace, by definition, assumes that everyone is indicted equally that all of us have original sin and are fundamentally flawed, that there is not general goodness in us, but actual badness that is the definition of what it means to be human. If you believe that, then you believe that the only remedy to that condition is grace. And if it's grace, then it has to apply to all. As soon as you say, no, grace only applies to some, you have diminished the actual message itself. So the fact that it applies to all is the validation of the content of the message itself. The second you start drawing lines, you are diminishing your own self-understanding as one most in need of grace. And that was precisely Jonah's problem. He did not understand. He could not see how he was on the same roof with the Ninevites. 
I have one final application, then we close. Uh, today uh, is the last Sunday before uh, Ash Wednesday, as was said. We have 46 days total. It's always Ash Wednesday to Easter. It's 46 days. And then we are called to fast for 40 of those days. And then we break our fast every Sunday with the final breaking of the whole fast on Easter Sunday. And I want to ask you to think about as an application to this sermon something that you need to deliberately create by either taking away from your life or adding to your life something that highlights the fact of your brokenness and helps you to actively engage in your pivot from that brokenness. Something that will facilitate God's grace in your life. I have, I've chosen a fast that I'm going to do that I've done the last few years. And you can pick something. And it's really doable because you get to break it every week. It's really nice. You can do anything for six days. Right? So think of something. And Elise, our own Elise Steele that you heard from earlier, she's, going, she's working on a devotional so that we have something to read uh, every day of these 46 days. And you'll be getting that as those become available. I think it's primarily made for kids, but we probably need it more than our kids do, to be honest. Um, in conclusion, I say we all need to pivot regularly as a matter of course because we are all fundamentally broken and all in need of grace. And we host each other. We practice hospitality by growing at each other's expense and in each other's presence because we all partake of the ministry of God's grace towards us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we thank you this day for your mercies that are new and your grace that is abounding. And grace, this grace that you have for us translates differently to each person because your grace meets each person exactly where they're at. And you're not even just throwing it out there. It's not a, um, a feeding frenzy, but you walk with us. You hold each person's hand. And so, God, I ask you to uh, love on us as we need to be loved. Help us to uh, turn as the Ninevites did. Help us to grow in awareness of our own brokenness. Help us to grow in our graciousness towards others, knowing we need the exact same things. So God, thank you for your grace, and we look to it in Jesus' name. Amen.